Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here's my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're discussing the dystopian thriller Snowpiercer, which is directed by Bong Joon-ho and stars Chris Evans. Based on the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage, um, it takes place after a climate apocalypse where the surviving population lives on a train that constantly circles the globe. So it has an ensemble cast which includes Tilda Swinton, um, Octavia Spencer and the regular Bong Joon-ho collaborator Song Kang-ho. And it involves Chris Evans' character escaping a life of drudgery in the lower class section of the train, fomenting a revolution against the wealthy people who live at the front. Um, so this movie is amazing. It's gritty and beautiful. It's kind of darkly funny with this absurd sense of humour. Um, and it really deserved wider attention when it came out in 2014. But unfortunately, it was completely screwed over by Harvey Weinstein. Yes, we will get to that near the end of the podcast. It has a really interesting release history, especially in the context of what has kind of happened with uh, online release of movies in the wake of this film. Uh, we should say that we decided to do this this weekend because this movie has finally, five years later, made it to the United Kingdom by, by way of Netflix. So if you are British, you can watch this movie now legally on Netflix. It is also available, I think, in the rest of the world, certainly in the United States, on Netflix. So it is finally widely available. Yeah, so I rewatched this a couple days ago. I hadn't seen it since it came out. I think I saw it twice at the time and really, really liked it. But I think it's aged incredibly well. Like, I, I make lists, as people know, every year of, like, my top 10 to 20 movies. And I think this was 11 on my list that year. And I would put it much higher now. I think this is one of the kind of iconic films of the last decade. It is incredibly prescient and timely. And um, the thing about it that's so fascinating and successful is that it is completely an allegory for capitalism, which is something that I don't usually respond to, meaning stories that are just pure allegories. Like, I find them usually quite overly simplistic and sort of boring. But this is a rare example of something that is done so in such a sophisticated way. Well, the movie is very entertaining, like just on a pure kind of experiential level. You know, it's an entertaining thriller that has jokes and is easy to understand. But also like the whole concept is this very obvious kind of allegorical setting about kind of a stratified class structure. Uh, the the comic um, I have not read but as far as I gather, it's a lot less political. Bong Joon-ho significantly changed it and also added a lot of characters. Um, the comic is more straightforward and is kind of about this character sort of traveling through the train and sort of fighting and things. And the film is much more obviously kind of about society. <laughs> so it's like um, the main character, Curtis, who's played by Chris Evans, um, he starts off at the very kind of lowest rung of the ladder. Like he lives in the at the back of the train where everyone is living in squalor and poverty and all the characters who live there, including characters played by Octavia Spencer, um, Jamie Bell and John Hurt um, are kind of eating these like disgusting sort of like fuel blocks and they're covered in dirt. And kind of the story is about him trying to follow these secret messages to the front of the train in a kind of very simple kind of quest scenario. But as you travel through the train, you kind of learn more about how the society works and how fucked up it is. And then you get this like really amazing revolutionary finale. Kind of the individual 
scenes, um, like the segments all take place inside train carriages. So this is like a pretty ambitious concept for a film. You know, it's all told in these enclosed spaces. So like you start off in this really dirty one and then you get to ones where it's like there's a there's a school train and there's like a slaughterhouse train. And then you get when you get to close to the front, everyone is just living in luxury. So you've got sort of like this really opulent train car that's like the Orient Express and you've got like a disco and then you finally got where like the the head of the train is like the the leader of this dystopian society and it's kind of illustrating how everyone is being taught that like they have to live in this really restrictive environment and there is not enough resources to go around because the apocalypse has happened but in reality the people who are at one end get like all these resources and then everyone else is starving yes and i think from a logistical standpoint the fact that there are so many different settings and that they are so varied means that it doesn't feel claustrophobic at all no. even though as you say they're all taking place in quite restrained settings and it has amazing production design yes the production design is incredible it's really really specific and vivid and memorable and because the plot is all about like we have to move forward we have to move forward and they're going through these different spaces it feels very propulsive and not claustrophobic at all. I think one of the best settings is the sort of spa scene where someone is sort of trying to attack them and they have to hide in these spa cubicles and it's very sort of uh, steamy. And it, it's just one of those things where it's an obviously good setting for something like that. And just the way the whole thing is designed and set up is clearly designed for this purpose, but it feels very organic and is just incredibly fun to watch i mean there's great action sequences in this movie you know there's there's at least two kind of pure action set pieces because there's that thing and there's the one where kind of chris evans and some of the other characters have a fight that's in night vision against all these kind of guards and this isn't an action movie but it's kind of fascinating to watch chris evans in a good role because most of chris evans's role you know you guys know how much we love this man we love him but most of his roles are bad and also he has spent like the most like the most influential part of his career has been spent doing Captain America movies, which are, you know, they're very, very action heavy. And from his perspective, the kind of workplace experience involves a lot of working out or standing around waiting for people to do something with CGI or performing four lines in front of a green screen and then repeating that 11 times. And like when you read interviews with, with him kind of about this film, it is clear that he was just like so overjoyed by the experience of like <laughs> being able to be in a set where you enjoy the set design. He was like, yes, I just asked if I could go and spend a few hours by myself in the sets and look at all the props. And I'm like, you poor bastard, you've been in front of a green screen for the past year. <laughs> That is so depressing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is clearly his best role. Yeah. And I've seen most of them, including some really bad films. And watching it was kind of depressing to me because I was like, wow, he has spent 10 years doing virtually nothing but Captain America. Like, this is the only notable movie he, he has made in that time that was not a Captain America film. But the conversely, doing those movies obviously also sort of prepared him for this in a big way because the action stuff is really important even though it's not the predominant thing in this film and he is really really convincing in those scenes but he also gets to actually act in a way that in most of those Avengers movies he's not really doing and he's really good he's just very very good in this film and it's very satisfying to watch and the their sort of relationship with the 
Captain America performances is interesting. And this came out here like a month after Winter Soldier, which was really interesting because they're similar and different. In- yeah, I mean, they're both very, they're both political, but this film is, it's dark. And I think part of the reason why, I mean, obviously like the reason why Harvey Weinstein fucked over a bunch of boobies is just like, cause he's shit. But like, this is the type of film where you can kind of see why distributors get antsy because it's this combination of being this really kind of dark political story and also having this really absurd sense of humor and having quite a lot of elaborate world building and especially with the kind of american market people like don't fucking know how to market that sort of thing it's like either something is a comedy or it's an action movie or it's a political thriller or it's an indie movie and like people find it very hard to like no, like ignore those distinctions and be like here's a film that has loads of really great facets and like if you see Bong Joon-ho's other movies like I've not seen all of them but I've seen um The Host which was his breakout film that really made it big in um in Korea like it was his first kind of big budget movie and it's a monster movie and then Okja which is a Netflix film he made his most recent film which has Tilda Swinton and Jake Gyllenhaal and is like a monster movie as well but kind of a more children's comedy kind of way and they are both very political and they both combine like really dark stuff with really really silly humor so it's like he has a very direct brand and also clearly this is playing in a very mainstream way in korea but like there's just certain combinations of slapstick humor and extreme violence that one sees in asian cinema that one doesn't see in western cinema so much yeah i mean it is very clearly not an american movie despite starring a huge american movie star yeah. right? it's about 20 percent of it is in korean yeah which is not i mean it's it's like a negligible amount but that was seen as like a shocking amount <laughs> right because it has like two korean characters <laughs> right but i think the sort of chris evans thing and this is what relates to captain america is that he just has uh the the capability i don't want to say inherently because i've also seen him play really scummy people and the play on Broadway he did last year, Lobby Hero, he plays a cop who's just like a total piece of shit. And he was really, really good in that movie, in that play. But um, he has the capability of projecting uh, an incredible sense of moral authority on screen, which obviously we know to be the case yeah. from Captain America. And he is really good at doing that here as well. And so the prospect of him kind of being the leader of the like tail section as they say the like lower class people here it totally makes sense when you're watching the movie that you would trust this person and want him to sort of take charge of things he seems like the sort of person who would be good at that right like he just seems like a good guy and he is a good guy like that's not the the twist of the movie is that he's like a monster or anything but the ending is very interesting. We'll talk about that later. But like, it's, uh, I think it is rare actually to have a movie with someone who projects that level of just like inherent goodness. Even if you have a character who's meant to be like a nice guy, movies aren't usually interested in that kind of virtue, I guess. And it's not that he's playing a saint either. No, it's kind I mean, of hard he's to describe like if pretty you seen the film. gross and violent character in many ways. Like, yes. as we discover as the film kind of progresses. Right, and but the whole point is, of the movie is that sort of he does this, the right thing that the situation forces people yeah. into these violent cir- circumstances, right? But if he didn't have that inherent sense of goodness, then the movie wouldn't work at all. And I I found that very compelling watching it this time. 
the other thing that you put in our document that was really entertaining to me is that like they tried really hard to make him look not hunky and didn't I forgot this, but all. I interviewed the costume designer when this came out when I was still predominantly a costume blogger. And like they really were fucking trying to disguise his Captain America muscles. They were like, the the director and the costume designer were like, we need to try and like somehow make him look like he's been living on like slime packs in like the working class (laughs) district of this post-apocalyptic train. So they were like, they did this thing which you usually actually just see in women's costumes, which is a trick to make everyone look thinner. But basically you cut the sleeves off everything apart from the outer layer. So like it makes you look thinner. I'm sure this was negligible for Chris Evans, but he literally had his Captain America physique in this. And also this film led to what is probably one of the best posts on Tumblr, which I feel like some of our listeners will be familiar with because this is like so widely shared. But it is a two-part post, which I'm going to give you a dramatic reading of just now, just so you understand. I don't know what you're talking about. Maybe it'll come back to me. Okay, so the first part is is a post from some person named Betty Jack. And it says, Chris Evans is so fucking rank in Snowpiercer, like he hasn't showered in 17 years and he's covered in blood. And he, if you, But if you fuck up after the frozen capitalist death train, you gotta call me. He looks fucking disgusting, but he is so on. And then the <laughs> response to this is the poetry, which I still people see people sharing to this day, which is a series of tags by the hilarious Tumblr user Killerville. And it says, on a dick scale of one to worth the UTI, Curtis's filthy monster tongue is a solid pop 10 in cranberry pills beforehand and hope for the best. <laughs> So while I cannot personally identify with this statement, I understand where you're coming from and I support the poetry of that eternal phrase. Yes, I have never seen that You've never seen the pop 10 cranberry pills beforehand and hope for the best post? No, I think I've seen the first half, but not the second half. And um, I feel like I've learned something today. And uh, that was beautiful. Thank you. Oh my God. Incredible. I have nothing to say to that. I feel like yeah, I really interrupted no what is otherwise going to be quite a serious episode. <laughs> but I was just thinking, like, what is the what are the essential pieces of writing we need to share about this film? And uh, that is one of them. Um, yes. Yeah. I did also look at some interesting interviews with Chris Evans, because, like, obviously when this film was coming out, the publicity for this was negligible because presumably he was busy with Captain America and also, you know, the whole release schedule got screwed um but i kind of learned some interesting stuff about like bong joon ho's directorial style which i wasn't really aware of before so like obviously this movie it cost 40 million dollars which is a mid-budget movie in the u.s but was like the most expensive movie in korea kind of at that point and it's also logistically like very tricky because they've got all these elaborate sets that are kind of a single train car that they then shake around on a gimbal um but there's this interview with chris evans where he kind of talks about the way they shot the film and I think the easiest way for me to explain is just to read his quote because it kind of explains like the difference between the way things are all, um, usually filmed so um, Chris Evans said typically when you're shooting a scene you would shoot in a master and you would get us together in a two shot so he's saying like him and the interviewer in a two shot um, and then you would do the whole scene on your single and then the whole scene on my single and then we'd have a lot of options in the editing room to cut the scene together as you choose however Bong will shoot the edit in his mind. 
If he saw the scene between you and me, if he saw the first three lines in a two shot and the next two lines were on you and me and then the next two lines are on me, that is what he would shoot. So there are days where there are plenty of lines of dialogue I have in the movie that are not on film. There is no footage of me saying certain pieces of dialogue. It is the most bold, terrifying thing I've ever seen a director do, but it obviously worked out. I will never be that confident, but it worked out. It's one of the most amazing things that you can do when you're that powerful a filmmaker. This is a fucking weird way. This is an unusual way to shoot a film. because crazy yeah crazy and when he's saying like there's film there's dialogue that you we haven't filmed basically he's saying it's like when you have the camera pointed at the other person in the conversation you have the audio of chris evans's dialogue but you don't have the footage and that you know usually this is all put together in the editing room and i saw another interview somewhere else maybe it was ed harris um who plays the chief of the train but it was kind of someone was saying like you know, you come onto set, you'd film a scene. And then the next day, instead of getting like dailies, which are just like a, you know, a jumble of shots they'd done, they would literally have edited together like a two minute scene that they'd filmed the day before because they only had the footage for that scene. And I, it just made me think of like, I think I probably mentioned this in one of our Guillermo del Toro episodes, but like these two directors, I think are very kind of simpatico in many ways. And I think also the two of them have, either intentionally or unintentionally alighted upon ways to completely piss off the Weinstein company in their filmmaking techniques. Because when Del Toro was making Mimic, which was um, like Bong Joon-ho, it was his first time making a big Hollywood production. The way he kind of learned to circumvent the editorial oversight from the Weinsteins was to just shoot like really long shots that you couldn't edit out. So you couldn't have like someone swoop in from the studio and like fucking take stuff out because it's like, sorry, the whole thing was filmed in like a minute and a half. Uh, and in this, it's like, well, you can't re-edit this because like they clearly only have like the material they've been given, which is bonkers. Yes. Um, but he must have a very impressive kind of chessboard of a mind, this man. The only other person I've heard doing that, I don't think he explained it as literally not shooting any coverage, but I think he does do literally this as Michael Hanukkah, the uh, Austrian? I think he's Austrian, I'm not German. Uh, director who I saw, he did like a seminar for a thing I was attending once, and he described this, and we were all like, what the fuck? What the <laughs> fuck? How do you do that? It's like the only way I can understand that is like, oh, it's 1930 and we have only so much physical film to use. It's like the only reason I could imagine anyone doing that. <laughs> yeah. And then I know Soderbergh edits as he's shooting, but he doesn't shoot that yeah. restrictively. Yeah, there are some he's directors just so who do fast. Edit fast, but this is kind of different. Yeah. No, it's it's ludicrous. <laughs> the other production anecdote that uh, very that charmed me uh, that I heard when I went to a screening and Bong Joon-ho was there doing a, a talk was that um, they shot this in the Czech Republic and that <laughs> Chris Evans would literally just go back to his hotel room every night to practice his big monologue at the end constantly just like every single night until they had to shoot it he would just be practicing and practicing and I was like oh, oh. <laughs> it's very good it was very good by the time he did it. And uh, I just thought that was very cute. Well done. Oh, and also he and Octavia Spencer became besties while, while shooting this I film. I know, very charming. Bong Joon-ho also, we should say, uh, I think you know how Chris Evans was cast for this movie and it had nothing to do with Captain America, perhaps unsurprisingly. He liked him from seeing Sunshine, which is another one yes. of Chris Evans's rare good movies, although it's a bit sillier than this. Yes, but... Again, this movie came out right after Winter Soldier, and so people, everyone, all anyone wanted to hear about in this Q&A was Chris Evans, which is unsurprising because it was in America, but particularly because it was being released right after that film. And Bong Joon-ho was just like, 
they asked him something about the Captain America movies, and I don't remember what the exact question was or <laughs> what his exact response was, but I cannot convey to you the level of disdain and disinterest that he had in those films. It was amazing. He was just like, I do not care. Like, but not even just like, I don't care. He clearly actively thought they were terrible, and I just thought it was really funny that, like, he had made... And he clearly loved Chris Evans yeah. and he thought he was great, obviously, <laughs> but it was just like, these films, garbage. And I was like, okay, well then, interesting. <laughs> so so the types of films that Bong Joon-ho makes he is not you know in the film snob zone that one traditionally thinks of which is like oh I only make small independent dramas and it's like he does make independent dramas but his most famous movies involve like big CGI monsters so it's not like he has a disdain for the blockbuster sci-fi genre that is like his zone it's just that I think that he recognizes the artistic vacuity of like, Correct. it's like exactly. he is also very visual. And um, as we have discussed, the Captain America movies and the whole Marvel franchise are not terribly vibrant in that regard. No, no, no. So why don't we move along to talking more about the uh, content of the film itself now that we've kind of discussed production. The rest of the cast also playing a really interesting set of characters, I think, is great. I'd love to see Jamie Bell. He is in so many bad things and he is great at every one of them. Everything. I kept thinking watching him, he's sort of, I don't want to say miscast exactly in this movie. because He's per- playing a character who's clearly meant to be younger than he actually is. He's playing a, like a teenage character and he's like 28. <laughs> he's playing someone who is fully 10 years younger yeah. <laughs> than he is, which is based on something that happens later in the film, which we'll talk about at the end winds up being very confusing because I mean not confusing like you understand what's happening but it doesn't really make any sense however he is delightful in this movie he is so good and every time I see him in anything I'm just like why do you make so many terrible films why do you do this so frustrating because I love him too I think he's excellent and I liked hearing his um normal accent in this which is nice because normally you don't get to do that if you're from that part of the country but he's really charming as sort of like the young guy who like worships chris evans's character john hurt is always amazing um as the sort of elder elder statesman yeah, the sort of dumbledore character yes exactly um octavia spencer plays the mother of this boy who kind of gets taken away to the front of the train and she is on on this sort of journey with them to the to the front and then Tilda Swinton is playing sort of the representative of the front of the train. Oh, she's and having fun. She's oh having fun goodness. with this one. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, give her a retro, give her an Oscar now. Just mail it to her house. Like, it is wild. Wild. And I think that the thing that's so smart about this movie is that it's so political and it's not subtle. But it manages to sort of express the politics through the characters in a very intelligent way. So it's not like, I mean, people do like give monologues about things, but it's not like they're giving monologues about like the means of production, right? Like that would be sort of boring. And she so brilliantly encapsulates and embodies the just like odiousness and her character of is this so whole situation. She's cartoonish, but because she's Tilda Swinton, yeah. you just completely believe her. I don't... She's so good. She's so good. I just was like, I mean, she's oh. like demented, like Margaret Thatcher, like 
very peculiar costumes. A lot of kind of prosthetic situations. When I was kind of thinking about our kind of notes for this podcast, I was trying to think of any other actresses who go for this sort of physical transformation and it's it's I can't really think of anything because like obviously Hollywood loves weight gain and weight loss so like definitely you see people who get really skinny or fat for roles and like especially with men like dropping and gaining muscle mass is like a big deal um but in terms of prosthetic roles you will occasionally see actresses take on a quote-unquote ugly role for Oscar purposes but Tilda Swinton is just like, put me in some weird makeup. And obviously, those aren't always winners. In Suspiria, it's like, there was no reason for her to be playing an elderly German man in that film. And it did not work very well. <laughs> However, in this film, so she got the false teeth, like weird prosthetic situation, like a wig. And like, she has done a very wide range of appearances, even in her like relatively recent movies, like in the past five years radically different appearance in a lot of her films even though she has a very distinctive appearance in real life and she's not like changed her body shape at all for any of that yeah i mean i just kept thinking about robbie malik and bohemian rhapsody and the stupid teeth that were i didn't see that movie but i saw enough clips that every time i watched him i was just like what the fuck is going on with those teeth? They're so obvious. How could you be? And I was also them? like, they look so terrible. And it's like when during Oscar season, I kind of looked up who did the hair and makeup because I was like, is this just a situation where like Brian Singer couldn't fucking get anyone good to work with him? And it was like, no, it was some like accomplished person who'd done the teeth on some like big sci-fi movie and clearly knew what they were doing. So it was like this whole production is evidently cursed. Yes, and the teeth in this, I mean, she takes them out at one point. They're meant to be dentures, but. You're not distracted by it. Yeah. It just completes the whole, the whole look. It just. Oh. And there's just overall just a lot of synergy with the kind of absurdity in this movie. Like something that a lot of people kind of picked out in this film, which I did not even register for me when I was watching the movie. But I think especially like if you are maybe like a male action fan in the kind of film world who is watching this film. People were really caught up on the fact that there's a big fight scene where Chris Evans slips over on a fish. Do I barely remember that? Like, but it's like you do not get that kind of slapstick moment that takes down the, the protagonist of like a gritty action drama in America. And for Bong Joon-ho, he was like, oh, we've got a great fish on this set. Chris, why don't you trip over on this in this scene? And then it goes into the film. <laughs> so... I didn't even find that funny exactly. It's just a, it's just a little beat. It, yeah, it's sort of... But people really picked up on it, apparently. Yeah, I mean, I noted, I find, I found it a really like compelling moment, but more, it it has a surreal quality. Yeah, because it isn't something that would normally happen, and like they're having this big intense fight, and then he slips on a fucking fish. It's like slipping on a banana peel, right? And you're like, is this seriously how I'm going to die? And you obviously know that's not how he's going to die because we're not even halfway through the movie yet. So like. No, Chris Evans is not going to die from slipping on this fish. It's not psycho. But yeah, I mean, that scene is we, that we mentioned earlier is great, partially because Tilda Swinton is like standing at the edge of the train carriage, like freaking out and yelling things. <laughs> and a megaphone. She's clearly like, <laughs> like, this is not what I'm used to dealing with and I don't like it. And when the danger actually comes to her, she immediately tells them to stop because she's a craven and selfish person. And, you know... There's no morality or nobility in this whole situation, she, right? She feels like, very real to, like, a horrible type of English Tory kind of deal. Yes. 
Very much so. And I think the actors had quite a lot of input into their roles. I mean, they all like speak, all the actors speak glowingly of working with Bong Joon-ho and everyone speaks glowingly of working with Tilda Swinton in like everything. Um, but I think also partly because it was like, it wasn't in Bong Joon-ho's first language and like this was his first English language film. I think they had like quite a lot of, like an unusual amount of input into their dialogue and that sort of thing. Yeah. And her, I mean, I've, all of her lines are just, it's, it's very good. Um, she has a speech, her first intro in the film is the speech she has, it's her only speech, I think. There aren't very many speeches, it's really right at the beginning and the end is where you get the monologues, um, but she has this speech that sort of lays the table for the ideological situation that you're going to be entering in this movie, uh, that involves a shoe that's really quite something. But yeah, she, I, she's the best performance in the movie. She's just incredible. I admire so much her willingness to just do fucking anything. And uh, wow, amazing. And then the other actor who you mentioned in the intro, Song Kang-ho, who plays this sort of... He like did the security system for the train. He's been like in prison for however long. And they break him and his daughter out to open the, the gates through... To, to go through the yeah. different trains. And they're the two main characters. They're the two main actors in um, The Host, which was like the big yeah. monster movie Bong Joon-ho did before. So like to Korean audiences, they are both very famous, especially him. He's like this massive character actor. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen any of Bong Joon-ho's other movies, which I really need to rectify. But like, I recognize him just from being a movie person on the internet. Like he's he's on posters that circulate around. Like he's clearly an extremely famous famous person in South Korean cinema. And um, I found him incredibly mesmerizing and compelling. Like it's obvious why he's a big star and his character is quite opaque. Like he doesn't have big emotional moments, but there's something about his presence that's really compelling to me. And um, you kind of, you can tell the whole time that there's something going on with him. That's not, totally clear yeah i mean kind of the, the premise the is that they need his help to like handle this high-tech security system but he's like very intensely a drug addict and like he is he and his kind of teenage daughter have this codependent relationship and they're not really compass mentis and like then you kind of find out more information about his backstory and stuff yeah but i just think i found the whole sort of combination of of characters and the dynamic between them really intelligently written because you have not only a sort of intelligent mix of ethnicities and nationalities which is obviously deliberate but just the general demeanors of the characters is very different so the way that they're interacting as they're moving along is quite uh, dramatically dynamic it's just a really well-made movie in terms of like entertainment value like my dad loves this movie and I don't think he loves it because of the allegory. That's my sense. Yeah, I mean, there's I mean, like there's so many just like very funny scenes, like the scene where they all end up in like this school carriage, and there's this surreally perky woman wearing like a pastel outfit, this really heavily pregnant teacher, and there's all these kids, and they're singing this really cheerful propaganda song about how wonderful it is to live in the train, and it's like this is fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they got Allison Pill for one scene, but it's a it's a humdinger. Like, wow, it's just. Whew. I mean, it was it was really interesting to I I saw the host for the first time like last month, and it was really interesting to see that kind of and see those two actors who are in this film 
because the only thing I knew about the host was that it was a monster movie and kind of technically speaking it is a very traditional kind of Godzilla monster movie you know there's like a monster that comes out of the river and it attacks the city and kidnaps a teenage girl but the characters are so far out with what you would expect from an American blockbuster of that type it's wild afterwards I was sort of like I sat down I was like googling like Bong Joon-ho anarchist because like between this and Snowpiercer I was like (laughs) wow but like the character that the father and daughter are playing in that film they are this like lower working class family who like work in like a food stall and they sleep there as well and the girl goes to school but the dad is like he's asleep half the time he's really dopey he's not that smart he's kind of this goofy slapstick character who's kind of laughable but like there's this amazing pathos because like he is in this terrifying dangerous situation where like his daughter's gone missing and he has to try and find her but he has like no skills and no abilities and when he tries to like find help from the government they're just like well you're an idiot and like ignore him and it turns out the government are also completely incompetent and corrupt and it's like he and his family have to save this girl themselves very much sort of actual every man kind of situation where it's not like oh here's this character that you like really have to respect because they're so impressive it's more just like please have some empathy for this slightly ridiculous individual <laughs> yes i mean that one of that's one of the interesting things about this movie right is that you're sort of set up the whole movie to see Curtis, the Chris Evans character as this like really exceptional person. And I think actually, well, let's just talk about the end now, spoiler alert. And then at the very end of the podcast, we'll also talk about more of the distribution stuff. I think actually the end of the movie kind of does reveal him to be quite an exceptional person, but in a different way than you necessarily thought. But he's set up as again, this sort of great leader of men, right? And the movie really undercuts that because he's like the, you know, he's Captain America. He's like this big white male action yeah, star. And he's been guy, leading right? the charge for all these people to get to the yeah. front of the train and like have a revolution against the people who are in charge. Yeah. And I think when the movie begins, you have an idea of how that's going to work out. And that is not what happens at all. So as they're moving through the train, I think it becomes clear relatively quickly that the people, the sort of smaller group who who continues moving forward, that they're going to get picked off one by one. It's like an alien situation, right? Like they're clearly going to die. This is what happens. But like everyone dies, like everybody dies. All the people at the back wind up getting shot essentially. And I don't think that, like that certainly wasn't what I was expecting the first time I was seeing it. It's much darker than I was anticipating because we are kind of, programmed and trained to have this expectation especially when you've cast like a guy who basically is the dictionary definition of leading man exactly and they chris evans and the the guy and his daughter finally make it to the front of the train and like everyone else is dead and it's been this sort of miserable experience and uh curtis is like banging down the door and it's like just you know let let me into the front and Song Kang Ho is like, no, I want to get outside. And he's been coll- he's actually been collecting all the, the drugs because they can work as an explosive and he wants to get outside. And he's been sort of monitoring the snow and knows that it's probably hospitable enough yeah. to human life. And like the film outside. has been conditioning you to have the same conditioning as the people in the train, which is the assumption yes. that there is no way to survive outside the train. And the only way of life is to be within this society. It's essentially like a conflict between reformism disguised as revolution, which is the idea of 
retaking the train and being more equal and the idea of actual revolution, which is like fucking destroying the train and leaving. Right. And so Curtis, of course, is like, you are insane. Like, we can't go outside. And then they wind up sort of sitting down outside the door and he gives his big monologue about how at the tail section when they first went on the train, like there were all of these people and there wasn't any food. And so they sort of descended into cannibalism and wound up literally eating babies. The line about eating babies. Oh my God. When I saw this in the theater, the reaction from people was myself included sublime. The gasps from the audience. It was just like, I think someone messaged us about this podcast being like, did you burst out laughing laughing in the cinema? Because I did. And I was like, I don't think I did. It's a very shocking moment. (laughs) I certainly did not. And um, it was one of those things that made me, like, this was great to watch at home by myself two days ago. Like, it's a great film. If you haven't seen it and are still listening, I recommend it, obviously. But um, it was one of those things that made me really sad that it didn't get a proper theatrical release because the action stuff obviously was really fun on the big screen, it's visually stunning, which is great on the big screen. But specifically, the big monologue at the end was so shocking that seeing it in a theater with a bunch of other people was really electrifying because we were all just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, Jesus Christ. And you find out that um, Chris Evans did not behave well in this whole situation and that he killed Jamie Bell's mother and that sort of John Hurt was the person who kind of put an end to all of this. And the reason and why John Hurt has only one leg is because he sacrificed his leg to be eaten. Yes. Right. And that Chris Evans could never kind of manage to do this. He sort of tried to chop off his arm and just couldn't. So big kind of like, oh my God moment. And then he winds up going into the front and meeting Ed Harris. And Ed Harris does this sort of temptation in the Garden of Eden thing where he explains to him that actually John Hurt was working with him the whole time and that he wants Curtis to take over. Yeah, he's been like groomed to be the new like white male patriarch of the stations. Like you've got leadership qualities and you've made it here and you've proven yourself. So so Curtis is clearly just like having this meltdown because he's like, oh my God, everything I believed was a lie. And he's clearly tempted by this because he's just been like broken down by this whole thing. And then the daughter comes running in asks him for the matches to set off the bomb and he's not going to give them to her. And she's been established as this kind of clairvoyant figure. And she looks down at the floor and tries to open it. And then they both open the floor and find Octavia Spencer's son down there who was taken away at the beginning. And his job is to like pull dirt out of this like tiny little part of the engine, which the piece for that broke at Harris explains, and they obviously don't have a replacement. And so they've had to like take children and stick them inside of the machine until they die, presumably. Um, And that's the thing that's like, this is a step too far. Right. And he winds up like basically sacrificing his arm to get the kid out. And then the train builds up and the only two people who are left are the daughter and then this little boy. And both the dad and Chris Evans wind up dying. Everyone winds up dying, in fact. And so when you have these two, like, children of color who wind up going outside the train and they, like, see a polar bear. So life has continued on Earth. So it doesn't end the way that you expect, or at least the way that I expect. And I think it's just, like, it's really, really clever because they do sort of blow up the whole thing, literally and figuratively. 
and the hero guy you've been following the whole time can't be the person who's sort of... Yeah, it's not like, oh, we've got this great leader now. It's like other people need to have life away from this structure that you've been part of. Right. But also, just from a narrative perspective, it's quite smart, because I think if they had... If at the end of the movie, Curtis had also turned out to be like a scumbag, that would not have been satisfying for the viewers, right? So he gets to have his moment of like doing the right thing, but also dies. Perfect. They've done it all. But the whole situation with Ed Harris at the end and sort of the tempting him to take over and the collaboration with John Hurt and then the sort of wanting to go outside, I think is a, it's an obvious metaphor for the machinations of capitalism, but it's, as I said at the top, it's done in such a sophisticated way and it's all been set up by the rest of the movie that I find it really, really smart. Yeah, it's very satisfying to watch and to think about afterwards. Yes. And I usually don't like that stuff. I usually find it sort of pat and like, yeah, 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 we get the point. Whereas with this, I think you're so invested in all of the characters and it's felt so sort of painful to watch everybody die throughout that he's really done a good job of illustrating the political points he wants to make in a way that I think is really, really, really difficult and almost never happens. The only other piece of media I can think of that kind of does the same thing, although not in an allegorical way, it's like just a very obvious way, is Black Sails, where like they have very explicit political content like this, but it's like the type of political ideas that do not usually make their way to the screen. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can think of books, but it's hard to do in a movie especially because no one wants to fund that. It's like the end of the Hunger Games where it's like, well, this is dissatisfying. (laughs) (laughs) And indeed, uh, Harvey Weinstein did not want to release it. So basically what wound up happening was it got an extremely minimal release and then was released on demand instead. While getting like universally praised by critics, this movie, everyone gave it a good review. So this was really interesting because, as you said, it had been this massive, massive success in South Korea. Like, I think it was the highest grossing movie, Korean movie of all time there, although don't quote me on that. Um, it had certainly got made a ton of money. And it had also been released, I think, in other countries in Europe and done very well there. So it had been established as like a box office hit in other parts of the world. And it just basically functionally was not released in an effective way because there was almost no press and it was available to everyone but nobody knew about it. And it it. got like a video on demand release and it was like before anything was really getting video on demand releases. Well this is what it was an interesting sort of harbinger of what was to come because obviously now things get released on Netflix in this way all the time. Yeah. But getting released on Netflix is more accessible than video on demand actually. And I feel like in a way, this movie was kind of the tipping point for that, where like people obviously are still having huge arguments about the like theatrical versus just home release of movies. But when this happened, this was seen as just like a huge insult to this film. And now I think there would be less of an argument about that. And And indeed, Bong Joon-ho's next movie was literally made and released on Netflix. Right, and no one knows about it. <laughs> like, I'm sure some people's, and I, my under, you've seen it, I haven't, my understanding is that it's less good, so, you know, fine. But it's just sort of grim to think about, 
to me. And, like, Netflix makes and buys a ton of movies, and they release things on their platform that wouldn't get released otherwise. Like, in particular, they have a lot of documentaries that I think it's great they release because otherwise literally no one would ever see them. And, like, we've talked about this before. But um, I think in a lot of ways this movie was kind of the tipping point in a way that is sort of grim to look back on. And also, obviously, just, like, in the history of the Weinstein Company. And it's like a textbook case. They were like, oh, there's, like, too much foreign language stuff in this. And they wanted to do a significantly shorter cut that played worse with test screenings. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, and the same year... I tweeted about this the other day because I watched them on the same night kind of inadvertently and literally texted a friend and was like, this is a weird double bill because they're not similar movies at all. But then I thought about it and was like, oh, wait, they literally came out the same year and were both Weinstein Company movies that got fucked was um, The Immigrant, which is also available on Netflix in the US or BFI Player in the UK and is was my favorite movie of that year and is one of my favorite movies, period. It's incredible. And... It was another one where they basically just released it for like two weeks and then it wasn't even available on Netflix or anything for like years. It was basically impossible to watch. And just like that whole practice is very grim to look at in retrospect. And I mean, obviously all the stuff Harvey Weinstein was doing uh, with women was vastly worse than what he was doing with movies. But it like that is part of his legacy in the movie business was was that behavior. And his brother very much as well. Like his brother also notorious oh, yeah. for like, the, in terms of the artistic input problems, he was absolutely mm-hmm. just as bad. <laughs> yes. And it's interesting to have those two movies literally in the same year. And The Immigrant was was worse because they literally didn't, I mean, it was, it literally was inaccessible for like years. But and it's just a historical drama. Like I've not watched it, but right. there's nothing weird about the immigrant. No, there's. It should have been nominated for like ten. It's Oscars. a historical drama starring famous people. It's. It was ridiculous. Like seriously, everyone go watch it. One of the best movies ever made. But Snowpiercer is more interesting as a case study in terms of like what wound up happening with the industry after. Um, and I genuinely do think that if that had gotten like a huge release, like I don't think it would have gotten nominated for a ton of Oscars or anything. It's too weird. And critics did like it. But it wasn't, like, on best of lists or anything that year. It just kind of died. And I really, really think that if it had gotten uh, sort of released and promoted in the right way, that it would be considered one of, like, the big movies of the past 10 years. Because it does feel so relevant to the times that we are living in. Um, And it's very accessible, you know. It, it It is definitely strange. If you're viewing this from the perspective as someone who enjoys i guess the post-apocalyptic genre and is going to watch a post-apocalyptic movie with action scenes starring captain america it is weird like it's definitely kind of an art film in that regard but it's not inaccessibly weird like it is all of the the political messages are completely comprehensible you can think about it more afterwards and you will understand what's going on like it's no part of it is like opaque and eccentric and when you think about like the massive audience that came to watch Us by Jordan Peele, which is opaque and eccentric, like people would have fucking watched Snowpiercer and it's very entertaining and it's wonderful to watch. It's wonderful to look at, like very beautiful. I was just looking up the production designer actually because I was like, oh, he's fantastic. I wonder what else he's done. And it's like, looks like they hired the production designer they found in the Czech Republic. He's a Czech production designer who just does random stuff. So it's not like he had like a big movie career taking off after this. He's currently working on the Superman spinoff TV series Krypton, which is a bad. 
This is, I mean, it makes you realize how much talent there is in the industry that is just not. Oh, this always drives me nuts with, like, production and costume design. Because, like, in order to even have that job, you've had so much fucking training. Like, you're so talented. There's, like, fucking binders of, like, amazing costumes that go into movies where some director is like, just put her in jeans. <laughs> like, it happens with everything. And it's like, I'll watch some movie where someone has an appalling costume. And it's like, basically 99% of the time, I'm like, that's not the designer's fault at all, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no I mean the one sort of thing you can say about this movie having such a weird cult afterlife instead of being appreciated as one of like the best films of the decade is that it really does sync up with its whole vibe it's, <laughs> it's the underdog you know, story <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah uh, give this a rewatch if you've already seen it very very easily accessible or watch for the first time if you for some reason are still watch listening to this and haven't seen it before it's great and bong joon ho has a new movie coming out this year so um oh really i don't think I yeah it's that. a drama it's uh all korean cast it's called the parasite because i'm the kind of person i am i assumed it was literally gonna be about a parasite but once i googled it i was like it's probably a drama isn't it <laughs> probably a metaphorical <laughs> parasite <laughs> well i look forward to it should be good um, next week we will be talking about sort of a, a spiritually connected movie to this, I think, uh, which is High Life, the new Claire Denis movie starring Robert Pattinson, which is fucking weird. I don't it's know much what weirder happens than this. in this film. I'm very excited because I, I know it involves space. It involves Robert Pattinson. Everyone who watched it is like, this film's a masterpiece and I'm very invested in Robert Pattinson being Claire Denis' muse. But um, once again, let's not find out what's in this film before watching. Yes, I recommend going completely cold if possible. Uh, this is out in the US now in limited release, I believe. It's not going to get a wide release because it's too fucking weird. Uh, but if you live in a city where it's playing, I highly recommend it. It's very dark and upsetting and strange. And uh, I will be going again this week. I saw it at the New York Film Festival last year. Uh, and it's also out in the UK as of this week. So uh, enjoy that. Again, it will make you kind of want to vomit. That's my uh, recommendation for High Life. Uh, but it's great. It's really, really good. And Robert Pattinson is so good in it and this cute baby. So there you go. If you would like to listen to our Adventures Endgame mini-sode or uh, access any but of our other fun... We keep saying mini-sode, but I think it's over half an hour long. So it's more just like basically an episode. It's an episode where Morgan doesn't get to talk much. <laughs> right. Um, or if you would like to vote in our poll... Uh, for what book we're going to read over the summer. Uh, you could find both of those things on Patreon. I believe North and South is winning at the moment, which is actually slightly surprising to me. But um, We are doing are Frankenstein options. first, however. Yes, Frankenstein is coming on May 22nd, so you have time to read that still. Uh, all of that is on our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. You could also leave us a rating or review on iTunes or whatever podcast service you use. We would greatly appreciate that. That's how uh, new listeners find us. Gabia, where can people find you and your work on the internet? You can find my writing on The Daily Dot. There's also in the show notes, we'll link to my old Hello Taylor interview with the costume designer from this film. And on Twitter, you can find me at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on Twitter at ML Davies. You can find the podcast on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. We are also on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.